Thank you all. Uh, our scripture this, uh, as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear the reading of the word together. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiantly white, more than any launderer in the world could then Elijah appeared before them with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for Moses and one for Elijah. They were afraid. He didn't know what to say. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my one dear son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this statement to themselves, discussing what this rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, well, Elijah does indeed come first and restores all things. Why is it written that the Son of Man must many things and be despised? But I tell you that Elijah has certainly come. And they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we're quiet before you, Speak to us. Speak to each one here, each one online, about your word. Lord, what a privilege Peter, James, and John were given in this scene. And I believe that you have now opened up that privilege to your people all over the world, all the way into Littleton. Thank you for the invitation and help us to hear it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So one day, many, many, many years ago, a Israelite fugitive who has left his home on the run from the law and joined with a, a basically a tribe of shepherds is out tending to his flocks, walking through the wilderness with his sheep, 
when something catches his attention. Off to the side, on the side of a mountain, is a bush, and it is engulfed in a strange fire. It's a fire that catches his attention. The fire isn't burning up the bush. It's just sort of staying. The fire's there. The bush is there. And he goes over to check it out. And as he gets closer, he realizes the fire doesn't need the bush. It's just present on the bush, burning of its own accord. As he approaches the bush, he hears a voice, an otherworldly voice, claiming to be God, claiming to be the God of his ancestors, commanding him to go back to the city that he fled, to go back to his people and lead them to freedom. And ultimately, that's exactly what he did. And he would lead his people back to the very place where he saw the fire on the bush. When they got there, that same otherworldly voice will speak this time to the whole community. And they will be so terrified that from then on, they'll ask the shepherd to speak privately with the voice. So up the mountain he went. And every time he would come back from speaking with the voice, his face glowed. It terrified everyone. So he would wear a veil for a few days while it faded. He was temporarily transformed. At the end of his life, the voice calls him back up the mountain where he can look over the promised land and then he breathes his last. And we're told that God himself buried him. Okay. Fast forward several hundred years. And we come to another sort of strange man. This one is a prophet. And he's among the people. So much has changed from the days of the shepherd leading the people through the wilderness. And yet... All of the people are fickle in the same way, uh, and, um, and they are terrified of similar things. Despite their rescue in the days of the shepherd, they've drifted from exclusive worship of God. In fact, their king has married a woman who worships other gods, and he's built um, temples for these other gods. So this prophet, infuriated that this has happened, challenges the priests of these other gods to a spiritual duel, and they go up on top of a mountain, and they set up an altar, and the challenge is whichever gods can bring fire on the altar first wins. That's the true God. That's the God of these people. So the priests go first, and they're doing literally their whole song and dance. They're chanting and praying and fasting and cutting themselves. And the prophet sits over by his sacrifice and taunts them. Shout louder. Maybe your gods are asleep. And nothing happens. When he determines that they've failed, he orders water to be brought to his 
altar and they soak it. They pour bucket upon bucket of water upon his altar and he prays and a strange fire comes. A fire that treats water like gasoline and everything on the altar is instantly consumed. The people's eyes are opened. They realize for a moment that yes, this is the true God. And so the prophet says, get these false priests and they run them down and, and execute them, you know, naturally. And uh, that revival goes for a little bit until the wicked queen enters in and she orders the troops, arrest this man, you know, and so he has to flee a fugitive. And as a fugitive, he runs to the mountains and hides in a cave and a strange voice comes to him. Elijah, why are you here? complains to the voice and the voice says come out of the cave on top of this mountain because I'm passing by and I want to show myself to you. He hears thunder and lightning and the voice isn't in the thunder and lightning. There's an earthquake. No presence of God. There's fire on the mountain. The presence of God isn't there. And then a quiet whisper. And he comes out and he's in the very presence of the living God. At the end of his life, this voice calls to him and a chariot comes down from the sky and he climbs in and he's taken up in the view of other people. Okay, I've just told you the stories of Moses and Elijah. The men of God who famously both met with God face to face on mountaintops. And centuries after their death, here in Mark chapter 9, on a mountaintop, they're meeting with Jesus again. The deepest longing in the heart of God's people is to be near him, to meet with him in his place. I think this is the deepest human longing. So many people haven't identified that this is our longing. We long to meet with God, hear his voice, and see his face. And there's something about the mountaintop. Hikers, can I get an amen? You just, you just feel closer. It's not theologically true. You're no closer than in the valley, but... Gosh, I want you to hear the longings in their prayers. Psalm 121 starts like this. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Being near the Lord in this way is a sacred privilege. Consider the, the yearning and the intimidating prayer uh, later on in, in Psalm 15, actually earlier on, sorry. Um, Lord, the prayer says, who could be a guest in your home? Who may live on your holy hill? Well, whoever lives a blameless life does what is right and speaks honestly. 
Elijah and Moses had remarkable impacts on Israel, but the scene for which they are remembered in the New Testament is what happened to them on the mountaintop, being near to God. At the apex, they had worshipped God and complained to God and pleaded to God and obeyed God. That's what happened to them on the mountaintop. Ever since the expectations of all of God's people were tied to these two guys. Moses said, a prophet like me will come. That's when you'll know. A prophet like me will come. The, the prophet Malachi said, Elijah will come first to make ready, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Okay, so it's one thing to wonder how Peter, James, and John knew who Moses and Elijah were. They, they didn't have photographs or paintings of Elijah and Moses. They just knew. It's another thing to ask how Elijah and Moses knew who Jesus was. But I want to tell you they'd seen him before. Don't you remember? Moses saw God before he heard him, he saw a strange fire swallowing, not swallowing anything, resting on a bush. And Elijah saw God before the second mountain when a strange fire swallowed up the water. For Peter, James, and John, Jesus' face appears full of fire for Elijah and Moses, the fire finally has a face, and they know who it is. They're seeing the one their hearts have longed to see. What, what are they seeing? All of them, all five of them, Elijah, Moses, Peter, James, and John, they are seeing reality, unveiled. The, the curtain is lifted, and this is, this is reality forever. They're not having a vision that's loaded with symbols and metaphors. They're seeing Jesus as he was. They're seeing Moses as he was, Elijah as he was. They're seeing the new heavens and the new earth folded over and laying on top of the old one. They're seeing what they will see for an eternity. What they're seeing could only make sense after the resurrection. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus says, hey, don't... Wait until the resurrection to talk about this. But once it made sense, they didn't keep it quiet. After all, it's in three of the Gospels. It's a story we know. Look, it's right. It's a good thing for us to be humbled by the incarnation. God became man. He humbled himself. He took on flesh. He, he felt our pain. He grew tired and had to sleep in the boat. He had to pull away to recharge. He was a human being. He was even subject to death. But we can't forget that that was a temporary look for him. His eternal state is that flesh that he took on, he keeps it forever. But it's glorified. It's transformed. It's illuminated. His eyes burn with fire. His face glows. His clothes are whiter than anyone can bleach them. 
That's like the least dramatic way I think Mark could have talked. Oh, bleach, yay. Um, but all right, all right. That's how he described it. Such brightness emanates from him that it swallows and absorbs every color in his clothes. How about that? This blazing whiteness that remains. Jesus will show himself like this to his people again. John the seer will see it on the island Patmos in the revelation of the Christ. And that's where we learn what the white robes are all about. These are the clothes of martyrs. We, we call this scene the transfiguration. That's what the little title of it in your Bible, probably. But it's more than that, guys. This is a revelation. This is showing us reality. Words alone such as, you are the Christ, which Peter just uttered about Jesus. They can't capture his identity. From Peter's perspective, he is the Christ. But they hear that otherworldly voice on the mountain. This is my son. This week, uh, Aaron and I learned about the underground church in Iran. In the uh, film that we watched, one of the leaders in the church spoke about her uh, conversion, how she came to know Christ. Her father's business partner, all throughout her life, came over to their house regularly and raped her every time he came. When her father found out about it, not only did her father continue in business with this man, but he continued to invite him over regularly to their house. That's when her hope fell away. Without hope of escape or protection, she concluded that the, the only out that she had was suicide. And so she got a rope and made a noose and strung it up. And as she attempted to end her life, her room flooded with light and a voice spoke to her and offered her a spiritual home and a spiritual family and spiritual protection. And she recognized immediately that the voice was Jesus. Now, if women are caught practicing Christianity in any form in Iran, they will most likely be raped as a form of punishment and then executed. Men will be tortured and then executed. And yet, the Church of Iran may be the fastest growing Christian community on the planet right now. Why? So many of those believers started their journey when a glowing man appeared to them. And then they went out and met a believer and started connecting the dots. Look, I, I know this scene that we're talking about here. It seems almost mythical, doesn't it? It seems legendary. Jesus goes up and he starts to glow and he's talking to two dead guys. Like, that sounds like a legend. I'm really grateful for Peter because Peter's role in this story is to make it very non-legendary. All right, if it's a legend, you don't have a guy going like, uh, uh, let's uh, build some shelters. Like, here's what the deal with Peter. 
the, the people celebrated the Feast of Booths every year, and that was expecting a great revival, expecting God to come and lead them out. And Peter's like, Moses is here, Elijah is here, uh, must be the Feast of Booths. Like, revival's coming, that's what he wants to celebrate. But what's really going on is God's showing what he's doing through Jesus. He has come near, and after the resurrection, he will delight to show himself to his people like this. Like the story. Whether it's tongues of fire at Pentecost, or a bright blazing light and an otherworldly voice that temporarily blinds Saul, you know, the apostle Paul, God loves to come near. He still does. A few years ago, a good friend of mine was training rural, rural pastors and church planters in Ethiopia, another site of the fastest growing faith in the world. Um, during that training with all of these rural Ethiopian pastors, a man approached in foot, dressed in more traditional garb, and immediately a palpable anxiety filled the room. And my friend who's there, you know, doing a theological training for pastors, uh, finds out, puts, it, puts the pieces together. And this is a man who lives a couple days walk away in a, a, a much more primitive uh, rural village. He is the chief of that tribe, and they are known for their violence. When they show up, they're there for blood. And so, of course, everyone's nervous that he showed up. He walks boldly in and explains to my friend through a translator that in his home, a man dressed in white, glowing, appeared to him and told him his name was Jesus and that he was to follow him and so was his whole village. That was all he knew. So when word came to him that there was a training for followers of Jesus, he was willing to walk for two days to get there. The Lord loves to show himself to his people. And look, you may be thinking, oh, that's never happened to me, Mike. Yeah, okay, sometimes he hides himself. Sometimes he does. But I, I don't think we should confuse our callous neglect our, our unbelief that he'll do that with hiddenness. I don't think we should confuse his, his refusal to compete with the many distractions that we're seeking instead for hiddenness. In my experience, and this is shared by many believers through the ages, he allows us a glimpse of his glory in some way when we go looking for him. He does. He's not lost, but he loves to be searched for. He loves to be sought. It, have you heard of a mountaintop experience? This is a Christianese phrase. A mountaintop experience. This is where it comes from. He loves offering us the mountaintop experience. Gosh, Martin Luther King Jr. Fam famously said, I've been to the mountaintop. And from the mountaintop, he has his dream. And his great speech comes after that. Have you been to the mountaintop? I have. And I want you to come with me. 
We serve a God who wants to meet with his people. He wants to come near to you. There's something holy, something special about literal mountaintops. If you're able, go get on top of one and see what I mean. No wonder God, God's people sensed that they were somehow nearer to him at, at the pinnacle. It's kind of the wonder of creation. Like you're still on the earth, but you feel like you're up looking down at everything seeing his handiwork. I can tell you, I fell in love with the Lord on the mountaintop. As a kid, going to Eagle Lake Camp in the mountains near Pikes Peak, up there, high up, sort of away from the distractions of my non-stressful childhood, um, God was close, felt him near. As a teenager, the, the youth group took several camping trips into the mountains, and there, sleep-deprived, stinky, under the unfiltered canopy of the stars, it felt like God was just sitting with us. Every time I see the stars like that, I'm, I'm brought back to that place. My heart is often cluttered and divided, and I'm so used to it that I barely notice. And I wonder if that's true for you. When I do, if I'm able, when I really notice a big clutter, I head for the hills. I haven't done it in a while. This sermon is making me miss it. I don't want to pretend there's a formula. God, God will draw near to you in the valleys too. God will draw near to you in your home. He'll draw near to you in your car. That, that, that's fine. It's not the, but, but seek him. Wait, 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 you hit Pastor Mike. What about Psalm 15? Who may be a guest in God's house? Who can go on his holy hill? The pure, the righteous, the honest? Uh, not, not me. Okay, fair point. Jesus tells his guys to be quiet about this whole, you know, I glowed while talking to ancient saints thing until after the resurrection. And I think one of the reasons they were to tell everyone after the resurrection was because this glimpse of his glory has been made available to everyone because of what he did on the cross. It's been made available. One who was righteous and honest and pure went on top of the mountain, a hill called Golgotha, and open the door for the rest of us to come. Only Jesus can ascend the hill, but now the new heavens and the new earth are blossoming in the garden of the old heavens and the old earth. They're growing up like a mustard bush in our midst, and after the resurrection, the seed has fallen to the ground and taken root, and we can come to the tree of life. We can approach. Saul, Paul, he was literally hunting Christians when the glowing Jesus showed up to him. Hardly one who was worthy to ascend the hill. But later, reflecting on the grace of Jesus, he wrote to, to the Corinthians, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there's freedom. Now listen to this. See if this reminds you of our passage. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Now, you may not have heard all of the connections there. Let me read the words of this passage uh, in the way they're translated in uh, Mark chapter 9. And we all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's the same word, you guys. Kids, come on back. You can find your moms and dads. Welcome. That's right. We all are being transfigured. That's what his spirit loves to do among us. What if you gave him a chance to show up to you? Here's one image of him at the table. The reason we it's so important for the kids to come back in before we come to the table is because this is a hands-on lesson. We get to see Jesus. What if you let yourself see him in his blazing fire when you come and get the bread and the cup? What if you let yourself see him like that? Now, you may have an opportunity to climb a mountain to be with him, and you may not. But take every opportunity, take every opportunity that's offered before you to seek him out. There's a mount of transfiguration that is available to you. We're gonna sit, we're gonna worship God right now. Like the the band's gonna come back up and we're gonna have an opportunity to sing and worship. What if rather than just going through the motions, we said, would you show up to us like you did to Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah? Let us see you in that moment. What if when we come to the table, we're expecting to see him like that? He's made a way for us through his death. 